0: This is TanakhCast. Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 10, Genesis chapters 32 through 35. After striking his last bargain with his father-in-law, Levan, chapter 32 begins with Yaakov heading south back to Kna'an. he had just finished almost a decade and a half as part of Levan's household, working for one daughter, then another... And growing his wealth in the process and now he's to return to Canaan to fulfill God's promise to him about the land filling with his descendants. Within three verses Yaakov has his first encounter with messengers of God. He had seen similar messengers in his dreams. This was the first face-to-face but not his last. As he continues on his way he sends messengers ahead to greet and mollify Esav only to discover that Esav and 400 of his men were on their way to meet him. Yaakov panics for a moment, then he springs into action, praying desperately to God for help, which does not come, before sending ahead almost all of his possessions as a gift to Esav and crossing his wives and children across the Yabok River. That night, alone on the bank, he encounters a man who wrestles with him, The tussle lasts until dawn, and despite wounding Yaakov's thigh, the man cannot escape Yaakov's grasp. The man says, let me go, for the dawn has come up. Yaakov refuses. He wants a blessing. So the man asks Yaakov's name, and upon hearing it, changes it to Yisrael, God-fighter, for you have fought with God, and men have prevailed. This is the third place Yaakov names after a site-specific encounter. In this case, the site of combat is dubbed Peniel, face of God, for, I have seen God face to face, and my life has been saved. In the morning, Yaakov divides his household again, sending the maids and their children first, then Leah and her children, and finally Rachel and Yosef. Yaakov takes point and meets Esav first. Yaakov hasn't seen Esau for over 20 years, and though Yaakov expects the worst, considering the circumstances around his departure, Esav, quote, ran to meet him. He embraced him, flung himself upon his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. They are reconciled, but soon part ways, only to meet again when they bury their father Yitzhak at the end of chapter 35. Yaakov relocates his household to a plot of land purchased from the sons of Chamor, the father of Shechem, where he sets up a slaughter site and calls it El. Chapter 34 recounts the infamous rape of Dina by Shechem, son of Chamor, the dubious reaction of Yaakov, and the explosion of violence from Shimon and Levi. When the dust settles, Dina is returned to Yaakov's homestead, but not before the sons of Yaakov lay waste to the city, murdering its men and capturing its women, children, and plundering its riches. Yaakov is enraged, accusing his sons Shimon and Levi of stirring up trouble amongst the Canaanites who, quote, will band together against and strike me, and I will be destroyed, I and my household. To which the sons shoot back, should our sister be treated like a whore? To this question, there is no reply. And the end. Chapter 35 finds Yaakov on the move again, back to Bet-El at God's command, where he had his first Encounter with God and his messengers. God appears to Yaakov again, blesses him, and reiterates his commitment to giving the land to Yaakov's descendants. On the way to Ephrat, Rachel goes into labor and gives birth to a son, which she calls Ben Oni, son of my woe, before dying. Yaakov renames the baby Ben Yamin, son of the right hand, and buries Rachel along the way in Bethlehem, or Bethlehem. Yaakov settles in Kna'an with his sons and household, returning home to Yitzchak's homestead in Mamre. And when Yitzchak dies at the age of 180, quote, old and satisfied in days, Esau and Yaakov, his sons, buried him. So there's a lot to talk about in this week's portion. Let's get to it. Just want to start off with a quickie observation. Now that we're well into our third patriarch, though we know little about Yitzchak, he dug a lot of wells. Yaakov, though we have much more insight into his personal life, his fears, his loves, the tensions which preoccupy him, he spends a lot of time giving names to places. In their own way, each patriarch was involved in changing the physical landscape of the land of Israel, leaving his mark and establishing facts in the ground as fulfillment of God's promise to Avraham. In the last episode, I had some things to say about rabbinic and medieval commentaries and about their value to the reader of the Tanakh and how, in many cases, they add depth and texture to our understanding. But I also commented about the disservice done in their name by folks who regard their whitewashing and flights of fancy as being on par or in place of the narrative itself. I even regaled you with a choice example of fanciful commentary, specifically the story of Avraham and his father's idol shop, because it, like many other examples of Midrash and Agadah, are good stories. There is a widely circulated anecdote about the idol shop story. Necham a renowned Israeli scholar and teacher of the Tanakh, would often teach groups of soldiers. Education is also part of compulsory military service in Israel, and soldiers receive a Tanakh along with their beret pin, shoulder patch, and gun at the end of basic training. So, Nechama asked the soldiers in the particular class to open their recently received Tanakhs to the story of Avraham and the idol shop, a story which all present knew from their childhood. So, these soldiers begin to flip around in the text, zeroing in on the early chapters of Genesis, flipping back and forth, not finding the story, flipping some more, complaining that, as usual, the army gave them defective Tanakhs only to realize that, yeah, the story is, is not in the Tanakh. If I was one of those soldiers, I, I don't know if I would have felt stupid at that point or angry at my teachers who sold me a load of nonsense or, or just simply confused. But I do know that readers of Anita Diamant's perennial book club favorite, The Red Tent, did not feel similarly stupid or confused after finishing that book where Artifice riffs on the familiar story of Dina. They knew the difference between intention and invention. But I do not want to talk about Diamant's revisioning of the story of how Dina truly loved Shechem and willingly became his bride. What distinguishes Diamant's commentary on the text and her retelling is very much in the tradition of commentary, with much, much, much more embellishment, is the gender of its author and thus its status, both of which are also reflections of our times. What I mean in a less elliptical way is this. Writing commentaries on the Tanakh has traditionally been a male pastime and as such only male commentaries have been considered by other men as serious and canonical. Are you crying? No. Are you crying? Are you crying? (laughs) There's no crying. There's no crying in baseball. Why don't you leave her alone Jimmy? Oh you zip it Doris. This tendency has been challenged in recent decades by the publication of numerous editions of women's commentaries like Ellen Frankel's 1996 The Five Books of Miriam, a woman's commentary on the Torah, or Elise Goldstein's many similarly named edited collections. Nevertheless, there has yet to be a mainstream edition of the Torah in translation that includes as many commentaries by women as by men. The 1936 Hertz Pentateuch, the 1947 Cohen-edited Sonsino Humash, the 1981 Plout Torah, the 1994 Stone sponsored Art Scroll Humash, and 2001 Etz Chaim edition. Looking at a list of their contributors, one cannot help but conclude. We still have a long way to go in this regard. So having said all that about the need for and role of commentaries, which will surely pop up again at some point over the coming years, I want to look at the story which inspired Diamant, The Rape of Dina. So far, the track record on women in the Tanakh has not been good. Though without women, there would be literally no story. Women are marginal to its unfolding. The first, known initially as The Woman, only received a name after she misbehaved. We know nothing of the women that birthed and raised the subsequent generations until Ada and Sila, who are mentioned then, descend back into obscurity. Noah's wife, Noah, the guy on the boat, she has no name. Sarai, who has a name, has apparently nothing to say for seven chapters, although we are told on numerous occasions that her womany parts do not work. And when she finally speaks, she pokes at Avraham's impotence. Wow, he's very nice. This observation about the sorry state of women in the very androcentric and patriarchal Tanakh has been made before, with more depth and scholarship and elegance, so it need not be made again here. But I want to look at how the story of Dina has been read and how the Tanakh speaks of rape. The only other incident of what we would regard as rape in the Tanakh appears in Samuel 2 between half-siblings Amnon and Tamar. There, the Tanakh recounts Amnon's scheming, but more importantly, it records Tamar's desperate attempt to talk Amnon out of it. Don't, brother, she says, don't force me. Such things are not done in Israel. Don't do such a vile thing. Where will I carry my shame? And, And you, you will be like any of the scoundrels of Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not refuse me to you. But Amnon would not listen and, quote, he overpowered her and lay with her by force. Listen to the language used there. Don't force me, vile thing, my shame, scoundrels of Israel, overpowered, lay with her by force. There's no mistake there about how the text regards what happened. Tamar's humiliation is palpable as is the violence Amnon perpetrates against her. And Amnon having Tamar thrown out of the house by a servant only adds profound insult to real injury. So is this the Tanakh's notion of rape, a violent, despicable, humiliating act perpetrated against a woman? But here, in Genesis 34, we have comparably less graphic language. Verse 2 in Genesis 34 employs the language of force, but follows in verse 3 with Shechem being overwhelmed with emotion, loving Dina and speaking to her heart, a description of male sentiment that stands out in its uniqueness. Verse 5 talks of defilement, but it is met by Yaakov's silence. We have no indication of Dina's shame or humiliation, but we do have some intimation of violence. And then there is the aftermath, the pursuit of marriage, the offers, etc. So, is it less of a rape because Shem has feelings for Dina and has his father offer any sum of money as a bride price? Or is what happened not a rape at all, as Diamant and other commentators have argued? In other words, If it's a legitimate rape, uh, the female body has ways to try to shut that whole thing down. What conclusions can we draw from this account here in Genesis? As we do not have Dina's account to consider, it's hard to say if consent was given. Can we draw any conclusions from the outcome of the encounter, or would Shimon and Levi's violent reaction have been the response regardless of Dina's intention? And would Yaakov have held back or berated Shimon and Levi as vituperatively for what they did in Shechem, had he known anything of Dina's thoughts that day? We don't know. But what I do know and find rather curious is that some feminist voices, and not a majority by any means, not even a plurality, perhaps, let's say, a vocal minority who speak about this story often deny that rape happened here or at least question whether what happened between Shechem and Dina could be qualified as rape. I should point out that the overwhelming majority of feminist critics read this story as a rape story and critique it for how rape is downplayed or sidelined. That being said, it's not surprising at all that stodgy old white guys would downplay the rape. Yair Zakovich, eminent professor of Bible studies at the Hebrew University, excludes the rape from the story because of its, quote, difficult sequence, because he can't really understand how a man could only grow infatuated with a woman after sleeping with her and not before. It does not compute. But some, few, feminist readers point out what modern society calls rape is described in several Tanakh texts, two of which I have highlighted, but yet there's no specific term for rape in Biblical Hebrew. And the concluding line in this story also raises the question about the nature of the incident. If you recall, when Yaakov yells at his sons for despoiling the city of Shechem and stirring up the locals, Shimon and Levi reply, quote, Should our sister then be treated like a whore? Whores, though often subject to violence, are not by definition victims of rape. Whore or prostitute or slut are clearly stigmatizing terms. They are designed to shame women for their sexual behavior and appetite. There's no equivalent shaming term for a man who engages in sex with a promiscuous woman, nor is there an even mildly judgmental term for a promiscuous man. So the stain of sexual promiscuity only applies to women. And in Shimon and Levi's minds, it is a stain that can only be cleansed with blood, the blood of Shechem and all of his kinsmen. But not to make too fine a point on this, a whore is not by definition a victim of rape. A sex worker is an individual who exchanges sex for money. But isn't sex work inherently exploitative? Isn't it coercive? Isn't it icky? One might take umbrage with sex workers and pornographers and either pity or condemn them either as victims or predators, as dupes or the depraved. But other professionals who are equally involved in the monetizing of bodies get little to no stigma or condemnation from polite society, like fashion models or advertising executives or cosmetic surgeons or professional athletes. Fashion photography is artistic. Advertising is lucrative. Uh, Cosmetic surgery is a legitimate practice of medicine. Professional athletes are role models. And I've often wondered if watching someone get repetitive brain trauma is any less exploitative than watching them perform acts of intimacy. Is it any less icky? So, some have argued what bothered Shimon and Levi so much that they murdered the men of Shchem, despoiled their wives, and took their children captive was that perhaps Dina had non-coercive sex with a man under unbecoming circumstances. That is, sex outside of marriage. Shimon and Levi were just violent Puritans which sadly is a common phenomenon. And even though that unbecoming circumstance was about to be corrected by Dina's impending marriage, there was something about the arrangement that still did not sit well with her brothers. I don't think Shimon and Levi had a problem with the practice of paying a man for use, I mean, for marrying his daughter, or paying a woman for sex as their brother does later on in in, in a portion in Genesis. I don't know what to think about Shimon and Levi's wanton murder except that it was craven. And though this story ends abruptly, and Dina effectively disappears completely from the Genesis narrative, what did not end or disappear is Dina's presence in Jewish consciousness. Parents still name their daughters Dina without shame or embarrassment. I even checked kevalor.com's Jewish baby name finder, and there she was, listed as daughter of Jacob, which is what she was, regardless of what happened that day as always you can leave a comment question or comment at the facebook page at facebook.com slash tanakhcast t-a-n-a-k-h-c-a-s-t or at thenextjew.com or leave a comment question or comment at the itunes store and while you're at it why not leave a review that way other folks who are looking for a little tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun as always you're invited to come back and join us next week ish for episode 11 on Genesis chapters 36 through 39. Y'all come back now. Here?